0: Please be advised that I am NOT an expert on any of the topics I talk about. Don't just take my word for anything. Look into it for yourself. I also tend to swear at times, so listener discretion is advised. the governor of Missouri declared a state of emergency. Very serious situation here in Hawaii. Earlier this evening, the uh, civil defense calling for an evacuation of all low-lying areas because of a tsunami threat. The sky turns black as giant tornadoes touch down. From Nebraska to Texas, apocalyptic scenes as twisters. Hi! Happy New Year, everybody. I'm behind a mic, and it feels weird because it's been so long. So we'll see how this goes. The good news, hopefully, is that I'm going to learn to do a bit more proper editing. I'm going to be testing out three programs over the next six episodes and decide which I think is best for me. I do have to stick with free, though, unfortunately. But yes, Happy New Year. I hope everyone made the best of this past December. It's hard for so many right now. My mom and my husband's dad don't have cells or computers or anything like that, so the landline is their only connection to us at the moment and their friends and the rest of the family. It's not easy staying away, but it's for their own good, really. My son works in a grocery store and my husband and I are both working full-time and both kids go to school half-time. We are a household at a very high risk to pick something up and pass it on. We stayed home and played board games for Christmas. My husband and I have two kids, which is the perfect number of people for most board games. We have more gaming friends now, but back in the day nobody we knew was into board games, so it was just the two of us with this ever-growing collection because we both loved them so much. Before our second kid was born, we joked that we had to have one more so we could play the four-player versions of all our games. Anyway, that was our December. Elder Sign, Betrayal at the House on the Hill, Soro Concept, Munchkin Quest, Takanako's Small World, Terror in Meeple City. It's how we ended up making the best of the strange December we had this year. Oh! Also on Christmas Day, we did take a quick drive over to my mother's house and we did not go inside, we did not contact them, but we did stand outside, flip some signs that said, Merry Christmas, we love you, we waved, we blew kisses, and uh, we pretty much drove home. (laughs) Living Through Extinction is officially a year old now, but it is not the same show as it was in the beginning. There were two of us on the first dozen episodes. We would go into a bit more detail on a single subject end with a therapy segment, and sometimes talk about news items before getting into it. Nothing was very consistent though. I still have a main segment but it isn't as lengthy and I share some stories related to the environment, wild and plant life, and archaeology that caught my attention as well. I replace the therapy segment where I share things that made me smile or things that make me happy. It may be a news story, something I did, something I saw, or even something I collect. If it puts a smile on my face, it's qualified for this segment. The major change is the beginning segment. One of the things that led me to environmental issues in the first place is my skepticism, which is a major part of who I am and how I identify. I try to have a skeptical segment to begin with because it is through skeptical inquiry that most people go from being deniers to acceptors or from being on the fence to being acceptors. When you learn how to read a study and you understand how and why things were done, it becomes incredibly clear. The oceans are rising. The peat is thawing. The reefs are dying. The world is warming. And it's caused by humans, period. So I intend to continue to begin with a skeptical segment when I can because I truly believe that if everyone were proper skeptics, we would have no climate change or science deniers and the world would automatically... Be a better place. Speaking of a skepticism segment, on episode 24, I had a segment about reports that had been released claiming an average of 60% biodiversity loss over a 50-year period. At one point after recording it, I even heard the study mentioned on the SGU, so I thought that that solidified that information. Then, on a future episode of the SGU, sorry, that's the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, on a future episode they put out a clarification and I was all, no, what did I miss? I forgot to do any follow-up on this story. So I paused the podcast, grabbed a pen, and made a few notes regarding the clarification that they shared. Once the details of the study were made clear, it turns out things may not be as bad as previously reported. As Stephen Novella said, this is a problem with averages. Is it 60% across the board, or is it concentrated in a few extreme outliers? As it turns out, a follow-up analysis found that 60% is concentrated in 1% of the species. The other 99% appear to be unchanged. I repeat, it is not a generalized biodiversity loss. It is concentrated. There is a lot of disparity in the number of species and these can shoot an average either up or down. If this is true, then conservation efforts previously thought to not be working may actually be doing the trick. Cara Santa Maria on the other hand, another co-host of the SGU is still skeptical. She says she feels like this can't be the full story she thinks we should be watching for yet another follow-up on the study. Biodiversity loss is still a big thing, but in this case it appears the issues were misinterpreted. It turns out it is much more complicated than initially reported, as are many studies. Unfortunately, there's often some crazy headline put out, along with a bunch of rushed articles, as soon as the study comes out, before there's any chance to do any skeptical inquiry into it. If you want to hear this explained by the crew at the SGU, again, that's The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, that was on episode 802. This podcast is fantastic. They teach logical fallacies and critical thinking, and they cover skeptical-related stories every week. If shown to be incorrect, they immediately step up and admit their errors. Every one of them is smart and funny, and they are actually the longest-running podcast that I listen to. Podcasts were barely a thing when they got started. I have legit respect for each and every one of them. Seriously, go listen to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Any episode, they're all good. (music) This being the first episode of 2021, I wanted to share Smithsonian's look back at the top 10 ocean stories of 2020. These are brief summaries, so I encourage you to go to smithsonianmag.com to read the details if they interest you. One, when a Japanese tanker hit a coral reef in July, 4,000 tons of oil was lost into the ocean. While not as large as some spills, it actually did more damage than most because of the life-enriched, biodiverse area it destroyed. Two, a discovery was made of a special arrangement of black pigments in the skin of what are known as ultra-black fish that absorbed at least 99.5% of light. The article here notes that a black page of construction paper absorbs just for comparison. The follow-up work on this is expected to be based around ultra-black materials for nighttime camouflage. Three, scientists finally actually observed a live ram's horn squid. It's one of those things that we all know are out there because of their shells, but these shells are always empty when they wash ashore. This live one was not just observed, but recorded in the deep sea around the Great Barrier Reef. So go Google and see for yourself what the animal of the shell actually looks like. Scientists were wrong in their predictions with this one. It's quite interesting. Four, people have been tracking the dive lengths of whales. These are studies I had never heard of before, but I guess it makes sense if you're trying to learn how they go without oxygen for extended lengths. All sorts of discoveries come from nature after all. Look at the diabolical ironclad beetle and how stronger materials are going to be possible now because of it. Anyway, the story that made this list last year was that of a Cuvier's beaked whale setting a record of three hours and 42 minutes without surfacing. Five, researchers discovered a massive coral reef pinnacle that reached a height taller than the Empire State Building off the coast of Australia. It goes from the deep seabed all the way to about 130 feet before the ocean's surface. This is the first new large part of the Great Barrier Reef to be recorded in over a hundred years. Six, a new fish was accidentally created when sperm that was not expected to successfully fuse two eggs did the unexpected and hundreds of hybrids were born. The mistake has been recognized and will not be made again. None of this new fish were released in the wild, and there are only about a hundred that lived for several months. Still, weird story. 7. The longest creature ever recorded was discovered in the deep sea off the coast of Western Australia. You have to Google a picture of this thing. The large siphonophore is jellyfish-like, but so long that it looks like a giant thread dropped into the ocean from far above. 8. The effects of reduced traffic in quieter oceans are being studied thanks to COVID restrictions. For the first time, scientists will have a comparison to use against studies during regular traffic times. Nine, a study of microplastics in seafloor samples states that roughly 15 million tons of it have sunk to the deep sea. The worst part of this report? The scientists admit they were being conservative with their calculations. Fuck. And 10. The Challenger Deep is something I should do a segment on at some point. Think NASA underwater if you don't know about it. After all, the deepest parts of the ocean are just as foreign as the surface of the moon in some ways. This last story is about Catherine Sullivan. She's a geologist and former NASA astronaut and the first person to ever visit both the Challenger Deep and the Space Challenger. That's quite the life experience. I can't even imagine. So, those were the Smithsonian's top ocean stories of 2020. There's good news, there's bad news, there's even a bit of weird news. If any of these caught your attention, go read about them in more detail at smithsonianmeg.com. listening to one of my regular podcasts last month and one of the hosts made a comment about figs not being vegan because of wasps they commented a bit more but I was instantly obsessed and had to dive into what the heck that's all about this was on a great show you should be listening to by the way called creative conundrums I can't recall how but this wasp and fig thing came up on two of their episodes so thanks doc and senpai for the story idea so Why are figs not vegan? A fig flower grows in a strange inverted way, so the pollen is inside the unripe fig. Because of this, it cannot be pollinated by wind, and the bees can't get to the pollen in order to spread it. So how are figs pollinated? First off, it's not all, but a lot of figs have the weirdest pollination process I've ever heard of. When a female fig wasp is ready to lay her eggs, she will crawl up a small passage in the fig to do so. The sad part is that she loses her antennae and wings as she crawls. She can't survive outside anymore, so she dies there, inside the fig, after laying her eggs. The fig will use an enzyme called ficin to break down the wasp's body into protein and absorb it while the eggs remain unharmed. Upon birth, the males chew a way out before fertilizing the newly born female wasps so they won't end up like their mother. Finally, the fertilized female exits through the hole made by the males carrying the pollen with them. This is the crazy complicated way that the fig finally gets its pollen out. These fertilized females then find another fig tree to repeat the process in another fig. Fucking nature's crazy, man. This doesn't mean you eat wasps every time you eat a fig. There is a chance of it, but it's not a big one. Wasps tend to lay eggs in male figs and we eat the female ones, but they are still not considered vegan by many because occasionally a female wasp will accidentally crawl into a female fig. When this happens, she unfortunately doesn't have enough room to lay her eggs and she will just die there. I have to mention that the vegan classification of figs isn't agreed upon, it's a debated issue among vegans. Some argue that the pollination process which leads to their death is completely natural as well as mutually beneficial to both the tree and the wasp. Not all figs endure this complicated process for pollination, in fact there are commercial varieties which are grown without wasp pollination. Wasps entering the female figs, which we eat, is not as common as entering the males, which we do not eat. Many vegans believe they are not contributing to the exploitation or suffering of animals by eating a fig. They do not see where the harm is, as if there is a wasp inside, it is already dead. And finally, figs are healthy and full of fiber and many vegans feel like there's no reason to exclude them from their diet. However, there are still many who argue that if there is a chance of eating a wasp, that means you may be consuming an animal and that is not okay. I am not vegan, or even a vegetarian, so I don't know how I would feel about it if that were important to me. If there are any vegan listeners out there, I would appreciate hearing from you. Do you consider figs to be vegan or no? Why or why not? Email me at livingthroughextinction@gmail.com. at gmail.com. Would you like to hear about a tower of skulls? I know I would, so I'm sharing this story. There was a time in the 15th and early 16th centuries when the Aztecs were at the height of their power. According to archaeologists, prestige and power was shown off with trophy racks made up of circular rows of skulls. The way they were made is rather gruesome. The fresh heads of sacrificed men, women, and children were placed on poles in a circle, and it's believed the mortar would not be added until the meat had rotted away. Ugh. It's believed that there were seven of these cylindrical structures in the Mexico City area before everything was destroyed by the Spanish. This latest find is about 3.5 meters below street level, and excavators have to take great care because it is located under several historic buildings. Initial parts of it were discovered in 2015, and now, with this latest discovery, this particular tower has 603 skulls in it so far. It is thought to be a temple-honoring... <laughs> I'm going to try to say it once. Huitzilopochtli. Okay, I'm going to try again. Huitzilopochtli, the Aztec god of sun, war, and human sacrifice. An interesting detail about this tower... There's apparently a part where the rows of skulls were positioned to be facing inside the cylinder. I did not come across what this might mean. My first reaction is that it was a form of shame, but that's just my uninformed gut speaking. It's kind of a horrifying yet fascinating discovery. For this episode, I would like to talk about wind power. Wind will be around as long as our planet heats and cools hot air will always be displaced by heavier cooler air causing movement from high pressure areas to low pressure areas. Wind turbines produce electricity by making use of these natural air flows. For ages we made windmills to transfer the kinetic energy from the wind to mechanical energy for grinding or pumping. Then the first wind turbine was used to generate electricity in Scotland in 1887, which was a lot earlier than I thought it was going to be. The creator of this generator did not require all of the electricity they generated and offered the surplus to town to light the main street. Unsurprisingly, they were turned down because people who didn't understand it denounced it as the work of the devil. (sighs) Some things never change, right? The first known wind turbine in the U.S. was specifically used to generate electricity to its inventor's mansion in Ohio in 1888. In 1895, a windmill was first used as a type of power plant in the US and provided lighting to the village of Askov. Close to a decade later, it was discovered that wind turbines with fewer blades that spin faster are more efficient than those with many blades that spin slower. This changed the way all were built going forward, and we have better production value today because of it. And by the 70s, the first wind farm was powering 4,149 homes. While a windmill transfers kinetic energy to mechanical energy which is used, the mechanics of a wind turbine are attached to a generator, so the mechanical energy is transferred to electrical energy which we are able to store in the generator. The faster the blades turn, the faster the shaft they are connected to will turn, the faster everything connected to the shaft will turn, and the faster the generator will collect electricity. From kinetic energy, the wind, to mechanical energy, the blades, gears, etc., to electrical energy, the generator. Just like hydroelectricity, but with the force of air rather than water. If you understand one, you have the ability to understand the other. If you've seen a wind turbine, you know it is a massive object. There's a reason they are built so tall. The higher up one goes, the less obstruction there is for the wind. It maximizes the wind turbine's access to high enough winds to produce electricity. As more than one of the articles I read said, size really does matter when it comes to wind turbines. The taller, the better, and the longer the blades, the better. On average, we're looking at about 80 meters tall, that's 262 feet, and each blade by itself can be 60 meters long, that's 200 feet. I never before realized that the blades are three quarters as long as the shaft. It's been a while since I saw some in person, however. I'm definitely going to take a closer look next time we're allowed outside and I get to go on a road trip. It turns out there are three main types of wind turbines in use. Utility scale wind turbines generate power in bulk, and it's sent to a power grid. This will consist of many turbines grouped together called a wind farm or a wind project, depending on where you're from. From the grid, the electricity is distributed throughout a community or communities by power companies. So these groupings act together as a type of power plant. A distributed wind turbine is more limited in its capacity, but it is only used to power a specific home, farm or business. This smaller setup is not connected to the grid at all. Finally, there are offshore wind turbines. There are not many of these now, but they have shown themselves to be the most efficient, and there are many plans across the U.S. to put more of them up. These babies are larger than land-based turbines, and as I mentioned earlier, size does count in this case. They are erected in large bodies of water and have the potential to provide clean power to all highly populated coastal cities. There are five of these giants in the waters off Block Island, Rhode Island, and those five offshore wind turbines provide clean power to a small community of about a thousand people. If the shorelines around the U.S. are used to their maximum potential, offshore wind turbines could generate nearly double the energy than what the nation currently uses. There's just so much potential in these things. Then the economy effects, they've shown to be positive as well. With the plans the Energy Department in the U.S. has to put more of these offshore clean energy providers in the works, tens of thousands of jobs are being created. Wind turbines themselves have more than 8,000 parts, most of which are manufactured in the U.S. In fact, there are more than 500 wind turbine related facilities in 43 states employing over 114,000 people. That's pretty awesome, and it's going to go up as the U.S. implements more of its wind power plants. Unfortunately, wind turbines only currently provide a small fraction of the world's energy. Fortunately, however, this percentage keeps growing. It's increased more than 25% per year over the past decade and is considered one of the fastest-growing methods of generating electricity in the world. A few good news points. According to National Geographic, quote... From 2000 to 2015, cumulative wind capacity around the world increased from 17,000 megawatts to more than 430,000 megawatts, They also say that China has been leading the way. They apparently surprised the EU with the number of wind turbines they had installed, and they continue to lead when it comes to installation efforts. New England has four times as many proposals for wind farms than they do for natural gas-fired power plants. In the United States, there is 10% total electricity generation coming from wind in 14 states. And in Kansas, Iowa, and Oklahoma, wind is generating more than 30% of their total electricity. Canada had more wind energy production projects built between 2009 and 2019 than any other form of electricity generation and currently provides wind energy to over 3 million Canadian homes and 301 farms. According to the Government of Canada, our geography is ideal for wind farms. I know I see them when on road trips, like I used to back when I went on road trips. And one last piece of good news, apparently if the current growth rate continues, one third of the world's electricity may be provided by wind power by the year 2050. Wind turbines are a source of clean, renewable energy that will never go away. They put out zero emissions of any kind through operation. And wind is free, folks. One morning, everything was shit. Everything was harder than it should be and everything was going wrong. I had a Toblerone bar in my desk drawer for the afternoon. Well, I looked at that bar at like 9.30 in the morning and actually said out loud, fuck it, and I ate that damn chocolate bar. Of course, then I felt guilty about it. I would never let my kids have chocolate before noon. Why noon? I don't even know. It just seems wrong to eat sweets in the morning. That's what my brain was telling me anyway. So to let it out, I admitted it to the world on Facebook with a post. Decided that with my shitty start to the day, I should be allowed to have chocolate for breakfast. I figured I'd get a couple of laughs out of some fellow chocolate addicts. But what I got was absolute support. The comments I received really were the best and made me laugh out loud on a super shitty day. I was left feeling very supported and unjudged and with a smile on my face, so... Thanks to those of you who commented. Y'all helped me turn my day around, and I really appreciated it. I have a second thing I'd like to share this week. This is a short online video that never fails to put a smile on my face. It's not new, so if you're an avid nerd, you've probably already seen it. But maybe it will be new to some of you. As soon as this episode ends, go search out the Stan Lee Fuck Cartoon. You do not even have to know who Stan Lee is to enjoy it, but if you don't know who Stan Lee is, what the hell, man? Anyway, it's an actual recording of his voice that is being cartooned. That's all I'll say. It makes me super happy every time I watch it. If you have not seen it, please, please take my advice and look it up. That's the Stan Lee fuck cartoon. It's fucking amazing. It looks like that's it for today. Thank you for listening. May your health and sanity continue to be replenished daily in these stressful days of illness and isolation. Thank you to Jason Martin for composing the intro and outro for the show, and thank you to Kathy Rayner and Paul Palmer for their musical contributions on the violin and guitar. I hope you will join me again in two weeks for episode 29 of Living Through Extinction. Happy New Year, everybody! The governor of Missouri declared a state of emergency. Very serious situation here in Hawaii. Earlier this evening, the uh, civil defense calling for an evacuation of all low-lying areas because of a tsunami threat. The sky turns black as giant tornadoes touchdown From Nebraska to Texas, apocalyptic scene.